Well, I'm telling you, if we adopt this attitude, if we opt for life in this establishment Catholic comfort zone of perennial appeasement and quietism, if we are more interested in retaining an air of respectability than in confronting strongly and bluntly this mysterious darkening of Episcopal hearts and minds for fear of being called extremists and fanatics and zealots, if we continue living this liberal illusion that we can act justly without risking our good name, our tranquil life, our well-being, then we might as well stand around fretting like Peter and wait for the cock to crow. But our woes are not all down to the establishment Pollyannas. We are all soaked in human respect, full to the brim with false charity. I guess affluence and Catholic faith have never been good bedfellows. Food on the table and a warm bed at night does little to encourage the vigorous prayer life required to sustain the truly Catholic mind we need in order to act justly. How else are we to explain the lack of passion and sense of urgency before the disaster we face? It's true that while at the moment we find we can't live with the bishops, we know too that by God's design we can't live without them and that there's only so much we can do. But have we done even that much? Have we prayed and fasted and done penance and really begged God on our knees to convert the hearts and minds of the bishops? Have we consistently pleaded with him to take the hirelings who will not respond to his grace to their early reward and send us real Catholic shepherds instead? We each need to ask ourselves these questions because it's hard to believe that God would not have sent Britain at least some orthodox Episcopal relief if he had been badgered sufficiently. Christ himself told us in the parable of the unjust judge that we should pray continually and never be discouraged. Just as the unjust judge was worn down by the persistent visits of the widow seeking redress against someone who had wronged her, our Lord told the people, will not God give redress to his elect when they are crying out to him day and night? Will he not be impatient with their wrongs? I tell you, he will give them redress with all speed. And then Christ immediately adds, underlining the point I made earlier, but ah, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith left on earth? And so I repeat, and I repeat it more for my own benefit than anyone else's, are we really praying for the conversion of the hirelings or their replacement by strong, solicitous, Catholic shepherds as if we believe? Given Christ's promise, I can't imagine that enough of us are. And because our prayers are not what they should be, our thoughts are not what they should be. Only by continual prayer can we put a spiritual disposition on everything that we do and thus 
keep the commandments and live peacefully and unperturbed, come what may, in God's presence, in union with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, leaving all and suffering all according to his providence, including the agonies of our present crisis. This is all about retaining that increasingly rare commodity in the neo-pagan West, a Catholic mind, encompassing a truly Catholic view of life, a view once summarised as that which sets all earthly values within the context of the eternal, the view which relates all human problems, social, political and cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Catholic faith, the view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness, in terms of heaven and hell. It is because our thoughts are not ordered in this Catholic way that we do not hate the insidious modernist heresy as we should, as the polluting of God's truth, which is the worst of all impurities. Where there is no hatred for heresy, wrote a famous convert, there is no holiness. And without holiness, truth rapidly becomes a dead letter and any prospect of unity dies with it. On the other hand, one who possesses a truly Catholic mind is alarmed by heresy. He sees that souls are being lost now, and this sense of urgency alerts him intuitively to the deeper implication of Cardinal Manning's contention that all conflict is theological. He sees, in other words, that everything, every debate on whatever issue returns to Catholic moral and doctrinal realities, and therefore that a healthy, unified Catholic Church precedes and gives rise to a healthy, unified and coherent state. And he sees all about him the catastrophic consequences for society of the modernist heresy destroying the Western Church. Thus, he doesn't put the cart before the horse. He doesn't fool himself into accepting that a sick church can heal a sick world. He knows that we have to heal the church and unite ourselves, Catholics of the Latin Rite, before trying to heal the world and unite divided Christianity. And so with that broad appreciation of the importance of a healthy church, a church untainted by the stench of heterodoxy and heresy, the Catholic thinker is not as easily pleased as the average Orthodox layman, whose standards after years of struggle have plummeted to desperate levels. A prelate stands up to condemn sodomy or abortion, the minimum one might expect from a Catholic bishop. And we go weak at the knees and lose all sense of proportion in our rush to congratulate him, in our desperation for something, for someone to hold on to. We blithely ignore the standards set by St Paul, who wrote to Titus that a bishop must be beyond reproach since he is the steward of God's house, 
and that the bishop is duty-bound. Two, rebuke sharply the many disobedient vain talkers and seducers who bring ruin on entire households by false teaching. False teachers who, St. Paul concludes, must be silenced. Australia's redoubtable Margaret Jockin writes, we are never immune for very long from the secularizing effects of progressive thinking. Diplomacy, discretion, and detente are in the air, and even good men have been persuaded to put policy before principles. So we comfort ourselves with the thought that the bishop who turns a blind eye to dissent on Tuesday must be a good fellow after all, because he accepts an invitation from someone to say the rosary on Thursday. Let's face it. We have been reduced to grasping at morsels of hope fed to us by canny churchmen who play us like marionettes, who play on our Catholic obedience, docility and goodwill. And so, right on cue, pro-life leaders urge their supporters to write and congratulate Cardinal Winning on his Section 28 stand. Fair enough. I myself had a letter in support of the Cardinal's stand published in the Scottish secular press. But have the pro-lifers and other Catholic apostolates taken on board the facts presented in my booklet, Great Defenders or Great Pretenders, on sale at the Christian Order stall downstairs, detailing the sort of shocking negligence and complicity of the Scottish hierarchy to which Pat referred? Have they ever thought to use their considerable resources to pressure and to relentlessly maintain that pressure on his eminence and bishops everywhere to clean up their own backyards, to silence the dissenters, to institute a zero-tolerance policy on liturgical abuse, to reform their truly degraded seminaries and teacher training colleges, to do the job St Paul insists they were consecrated under God to do irreproachably? Or have the leaders and supporters of the major orthodox movements instead excused our bishops who allow false teaching because occasionally they impress, allowing a Latin mass here, patronising a Marian or pro-life conference there. Look, we are kidding ourselves if we think we do well to commend what looks like duplicity in our leaders. Episcopal salvation is, to say the very least, problematic. Many priests are lost and few bishops are saved, said St John Chrysostom, himself a bishop. After his mother congratulated him on his appointment as Bishop of Mantua, St Pius X told her, Mother, you do not realise what it means to be a bishop. I shall lose my soul if I neglect my duty. So we have to stop pandering to duplicitous shepherds and start fearing. For them, 
since they appear to have lost all fear of God themselves and fearing for our complicity in their negligence. And I suggest to regain this holy fear, which will spur us to act justly in the present crisis, we need to grasp the reality, difficult though it is without the sight of blood on the floor, that as Pat mentioned, we really are at war. Yet why should it surprise us? There was war in heaven. Fierce war broke out in heaven, writes St. John in Revelation, where Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought on their part but could not win the day or stand their ground in heaven any longer. The great dragon was flung down to earth. He whom we call the devil or Satan, the whole world's seducer, flung down to earth and his angels with him. And this dragon, St. John tells us, went elsewhere to make war on men who keep God's commandments and hold fast to the truth concerning Jesus. And so St. Paul warns us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the armour of God, take up the shield of faith, make the helmet of salvation your own, and the sword of the Spirit, God's word. Yes, Christ extends his arms in charity to embrace all men, but the charity of Christ is not soft. There is a sword in one hand, a sword in the classic tradition of Christian paradox that at once divides and unifies, censures and saves. Do not imagine, declared Jesus, that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Henceforth, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. A man's enemies will be the people of his own house. Significantly, it is at this point, after stressing the need for division, that Jesus says, he who secures his own life, that is, denies his faith under persecution or otherwise compromises with the world, will lose it. It is the man who loses his life for my sake that will secure it. And so this sword, which is truth, only divides in order to unite to Christ those believers who live the faith and persevere in the faith. It is thus the sword of unity, the same sword wielded by St. Michael to cast out Satan and his proud and rebellious angelic hordes in order to unite the faithful heavenly hosts. It is the sword which faithful Catholics must wield today with the same antique severity and holy violence of the angels and prophets if the modernist impasse within the closed ranks of the British episcopates is ever to be broken and Christ's faithful reunited in Catholic truth. If the church is not militant, she cannot thrive and flourish. Her sword of unity becomes blunt and useless. And if we have thus far not been sufficiently militant, if that sword has lost its edge, 
It is surely because so few in the Orthodox camp have taken Pope Leo XIII at his word when he said that Catholics were born for combat, by which he meant that a Catholic enters a spiritual war zone when he leaves his mother's womb, that his baptism enlists him into the ranks of the church militant and that the war is there to be fought daily for his own soul and for the life of the church until he departs this world in a box. Tragically, we have sought to avoid the burden of this stressful, outspoken militancy, which is our birthright and our duty, by seeking refuge in a thousand popular good works and less militant apostolates. And even worse, we have failed to support or openly sniped, along with the jolly hockey sticks, at those who have worked to expose the rot and refused to be silent and acquiescent in the sins of our spiritual fathers in Christ. In the mid-1980s, shortly before the publication of his best-selling work, The Jesuits, The Society of Jesus and the Betrayal of the Roman Catholic Church, the late Father Malachi Martin received some remarkable letters from his beloved eldest sister in Ireland, Netta, who, fearing there'd be trouble about the Jesuits and out of concern and sisterly love, entreated him not to publish it. I, for one, can closely identify with the sort of familial pressure not to make waves. And I'm sure that this will sound familiar to many of you too. Dearest, she wrote, do you have to have it published? Is it going to do any good or will it cause trouble and pain? Bobby, her nickname for her brother, there is so much confusion and debunking of Christ's church. If it is going to add to the disillusionment and confusion of people about the clergy, think again. For heaven's sake, Bob, consider the whole thing again. Sometimes prudence is the better part of valour and the more difficult. Malachi thanks his sister for her letter, explains the substance of the book, and the pain and nightmares it caused him to expose the tragic truths it contains and responds. Will it confuse Catholics? It can only clarify and encourage and confirm and enlighten. If you people in Ireland had protested in time, you would not now have the shambles you see all around you. Don't you see those progressively more extensive shambles every day? And shouldn't you start screaming? Aren't you allowing confusion to get more confounded? Will your passing from the scene silent have aided or disabled the church? I would ask the same questions and pose a few others. Like why so many faithful Catholics have failed to support morally and financially Christian order and pro-ecclesia at Pontificia, who alone, on their behalf, 
have consistently screamed unbloody murder at the ongoing spiritual massacre of the innocent, especially children within the church. And why, if we are to be brutally honest with ourselves, when silence was called for in this very hall four years ago, so many of us chose to applaud the architect of our own demise. On that defining day of Basil Hume's tenure, between 2.30 and 3 p.m. on the 4th of May, 1996, ironically, the Feast of the English Martyrs, I sat upstairs and watched a Catholic cardinal do a consummate impersonation of an Anglican bishop oversighting an Anglican synod with you as just one more faction in the broad church he had embraced. And how my heart sank as you rewarded Cardinal Hume's rebuke of your orthodoxy in fidelity and obedience with a fulsome round of applause, preferring human respect and false charity to the truly charitable, stony silence that his outrageous performance deserved and which would have said more than 10,000 letters of protest. I could ask, what were you thinking? But that is my whole point. You were not thinking, certainly not with a Catholic mind. Well might the poets say that the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Or as Jesus himself said, what a great pity that the children of light are not as aggressive in the pursuit of their goals as are the opposition. Well, as Malachi wrote to his sister, it is very late in the day to think we can wield the sword of unity victoriously by cutting adrift all the dissident carriers of the spiritual aids now coursing through and emaciating the body of Christ. The time may have passed for fully restoring the, the local British churches to unity and truth. But our Father in heaven doesn't ask that we be successful in our fight just faithful. And if we persevere faithfully in doing and saying what has to be said and done, then, as Mother Angelica declared on this stage four years ago, victory is already ours. But victory implies a battle, implies holding fast to truth and vigorously resisting the evil works of the fallen angels in all their ecclesial guises. As the formidable Italian Cardinal Tedamanzi said at last year's European Synod, Catholics must learn to resist in the face of any seduction, ceasing to live as one of the herd. He was referring to the culture war beyond the church, but the point is even more relevant to the ecclesial war within the church. And so finally I say, that if we are to salvage anything from the wreckage of 30 years, if we really desire to re-establish unity in truth, we too have to resist the seductions of the counterfeit dialogue and tolerance on the one hand and jolly hockey stick, false optimism and quietism on the other, recover our taste for the great 
Catholic tradition of bellicosity and polemic in defence of our glorious faith and cease living as one of the herd. We have to start getting serious about our faith. We have to recover our hatred for heresy and learn to love God enough to be angry for his glory. We have to love men enough to be charitably truthful for their souls. We have to love the bishops enough to stop licking their boots, love them enough to tell them the truth about themselves and what they've become. We have to reject the siren voices of the Pollyanna Catholics and overcome our desire to be seen as respectable by the very men who have brought the church low. We must refuse to take a backward step in responding to the Holy Father's request that we demand the rights that are ours by baptism, we have to turn our focus from secular symptoms to ecclesial causes and get behind Christian order, Catholic truth and peep and be together, rock solid, united in putting the health of the church before everything else by calling the bishops to account. And to do all of that in the year 2000, we have to divest ourselves of our 1970s conservative self-image and stop apologising for what we're about, for what we are. And what is that? We are principal protagonists in a spiritual civil war. We are a Catholic resistance movement. And for the sake of your children and grandchildren, for the love of Jesus Christ crucified, it's time we started praying and thinking and acting like one, acting like worthy successors and keepers of the faith of our fathers. Thank you. I promised you a memorable day, didn't I? <clears throat> On your behalf, I want to thank Rod Peed very sincerely. I called Pat McKeever's talk a brave talk. I will do the same for Rod's talk. It was a brave talk, and we've waited a long time to hear it. Now, just before we conclude the proceedings, before we sing Faith of Our Fathers and before Father gives us his final blessing, I just want to say a few words of thank you. Thank you to our organist, Nicholas Legg. Thank you to the... Thank you to the stewards who've done a splendid job for us during the day, to the management of Central Hall for providing such excellent facilities, to the organisers of this conference 
and I would especially like to single out Daphne McLeod, who does spend a huge amount of her time on your behalf. And really, most of all, I would like to thank you all for coming to responding to the call to arms of which you've been aware, and to thank you in advance for all the prayers and action and sacrifices that you are going to make following this conference. So now I would like to ask Father to give us his blessing, after which we will sing Faith of Our Fathers. We have a a great organ here, we have a, a great crowd here, we're going to sing Faith of Our Fathers and we want to sing it loud because we want to hear, have it heard at the other end of Victoria Street.
Thank you, and I, I wish you all safe home. Could I just mention quickly two things? Uh, I'm sure many of you will be returning to the exhibition area downstairs. Will you please make a point of, if you are not already receiving the newsletter, The Flock, which is uh, on the Pro Ecclesia stand, please register your name and address there so that you will receive a regular bulletin. And also, next to it, on the Parents' Concern stand, there is a petition form for uh, about religious education in schools. Will you please pick up a copy of that as well? Thanks again. God bless and safe home.